This episode has been brought to you in part by the Azrieli Music Prizes. Join them in celebrating artistic excellence at the AMP Gala Concert, live from Maison Symphonique in Montreal, happening October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Orchestre Metropolitain will premiere award-winning music by laureates Aharon Harla, Iman Habibi, and Rita Ueda. Learn more at azrielifoundation.org backslash AMP. Marsha Liederman is a Vancouver-based journalist and author, and she's got a new job. She starts as an opinion columnist for the Globe and Mail newspaper. It's an important national platform for a Canadian Jewish woman who's the daughter of Holocaust survivors. She's been a journalist for 30-plus years now, and she's been writing for the Globe for about half that time about the arts and culture and film and television. The new job comes after Liederman's new book came out, It came out in the spring, and some of you may have even read it. It's called Kiss the Red Stairs. It's a very personal story about Liederman's parents and how intergenerational trauma has affected her life, too. It's why she thinks she reacts so strongly to challenges, including getting divorced and raising a child. Liederman isn't the first Jewish person at the Globe to work in the editorial branch. Robin Erbach is there now, also Sarah Efron, plus Craig Offman used to head up the whole section, but... While Liederman won't reveal exactly what she's planning to write about, and not even a hint about Saturday's piece, she knows people will be watching to see how she navigates her own personal views about Jewish themes, like anti-Semitism, and how she tackles trickier ones, like the Israel-Palestine question. One thing she knows for sure, though, is that her late mother would have been so proud. When my parents came to Canada after the Second World War, they didn't know English, And my mother taught herself English by reading the newspaper. And it means so much to me that I, her daughter, is now working. um, And I mean, I have been working at the Globe and Mail for 15 years, but this is maybe maybe a higher profile uh, kind of position. I'm not sure my mother would have been reading the arts coverage, to be honest, but she probably would have been reading the opinion columns. And... That's a real thrill for me. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Thursday, September the 15th, 2022. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropium. Marsha Liederman grew up in Toronto with two much older sisters, but no grandparents. Her mother told her at an early age why that was. But it was only after her parents had both died that she started digging into their lives to discover the things she'd never thought to ask them when they were alive. The result is a riveting story in her book. In a nutshell, they were Polish teenagers. They had both survived ghettos and slave labor battalions. Then her father was saved by posing as a Christian and working for an unsuspecting German farm family in Germany. Her mom was eventually deported to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Now, the book isn't the first time Liederman has tackled the Holocaust as a subject in her career. She actually won an award for a radio program about it on the CBC. She even interviewed the notorious Holocaust denier Ernst Zundel, although she now writes that she regrets shaking his hand after he said they served ice cream in Auschwitz. Liederman joins us from Vancouver, where she's just filed her first column to be published on Saturday. It's really great to meet you after all these years that we've worked in similar circles, and congratulations on your book and your new uh, column, which we'll 
get into both in our show, but it's really uh, an exciting time for you. So congratulations. Thank you. It's crazy that we've never met. I feel like I know you. And vice versa, because we started in the same, well, in the same town, in the same building. <laughs> you are now embarking, and we maybe hear it here first, on a new venture, which is going to be a Saturday opinion column. It's a very high profile platform. How did this happen? How did it be, how did it offer to you or did you go after it? Oh, I went after it. <laughs> uh, there was an opening for an opinion columnist, which doesn't happen very often at the Globe and Mail. And a few years ago, I had filled in for a few months for Elizabeth Renzetti, who had been on a fellowship. I had enjoyed that experience of writing those opinion columns a few years ago uh, very much and thought I would go for it. Um, also, I've been doing my other job, a Western arts correspondent for The Globe, for 15 years, and it felt like maybe a good time to make a bit of a change and try something new. Now, that column, uh, of course, in the changing media environment, you know, there's fewer readers, whatever, but it's still a big platform, especially for a Jewish person and a Jewish woman to take on. It's scary, I imagine. And I, I, we said, as we were just talking, I'd be panic-stricken already the first week. But what is the process? I mean, do you have to come up with the columns from two or three weeks in advance? Do you have leeway for you know, your deadlines? What is it going to be like? Do you know? I will rarely come up with ideas a few weeks in advance because it will be very much uh, topical and off the news. I'll be writing uh, twice a week for Saturday and one day uh, during the week. The weekday column, I imagine, will be even more, you know, topical off the news, but so will the Saturday column. So as things develop in the world, uh, that's what I'll be writing about and reacting to. Although that said, I have a huge list already of things that I'm interested in writing about and want to uh, write a column about. So having ideas has never been a problem for me. There's so much that... I want to explore and write about. So I am, uh, I'm excited that I have a new way to write about things and more things to write about now that aren't just specifically about the arts. How much freedom do you have to tell it like you see it as opposed to, you know, be the sort of objective journalist, the way we were all trained, which nowadays now you're going to have more freedom to not be that way. Yes, when we were coming up and learning uh, about journalism, we were told, you know, the, the word I does not belong anywhere in what you're writing. So that was something I had to really get over when I began writing about the arts for the Globe and Mail, because there was some I in there. Uh, I review books and uh, mus uh, popular music concerts and theater. So it, my perspective was part of what I was writing about. And I also began to write some more first person essays and uh, the odd column. Uh, and so I had to get used to that. And that was a little hard because you're unlearning something that you've learned your whole life that you've you know, really uh, has been drilled into your brain. So that was an interesting process, but I've always had great editors who have helped so much. And now, yes, I mean, I, I have leeway to write about what I care about and to say what I think, as long as it's not libelous uh, or inaccurate or, you know, 
factually wrong. However, you know, I read widely and there are lots of opinions out there and a lot of information out there. And I'll derive in knowledge from everything that's out there already, but I will be writing uh, from my own head, of course. I mean, I have a certain take on life and I have a certain experience of life. I'm a middle-aged uh, Jewish, yes, woman. I'm a single mom. I live on the West Coast and all of that will contribute to you know, my outlook and my interests. But how much freedom will you have to speak about Jewish things and the Holocaust in this column? What have they told you? No Jewish stuff, no Holocaust, no. (laughs) No, that has definitely not happened. Although it's not, you know, it's not a, a column about Jewish things or the Holocaust. It may come up at some point. I imagine it might. I imagine it will, but... I, I don't have uh, any plans to make it about being a Jewish person in Canada or about being the child of Holocaust survivors, but those things inform my take on a whole bunch of other things. And also, I just can't imagine my editors ever telling me not to write about those things. Those are obviously important things. But then you get into the next territory, and that's Israel-Palestine uh Maruf, for example, Leith Maruf and the Canadian government's scandal over giving anti-racist money to a racist. Um, how does one navigate that in your new position? I know you haven't done it yet, but what, what thoughts do you have? Oh, I would navigate it by saying what I, what I think. And that particular uh, story was uh, shameful. I will say I would have been I would have definitely been interested in writing about that. And maybe I still will. So you're not going to be using this then as a platform to be the big Jew in the media. Right. And I only say that in a nice way, but we, we can expect a variety of things. It's not going to be all all Israel, Palestine, all Jewish, all Holocaust all the time. One hundred percent. It is not going to be that um, it, they may be times when I feel I want to comment on something like that, but that is definitely not the focus of this or my kind of chief objective at all. Sorry. Sorry, no, listeners to this podcast. No, I'm sorry, but what I'm saying is the reason that, you know, it's such an amazing achievement to be in this position that you are. As a Jewish person in the media, I know you must have been dealt already with your fair share of uh, hatred, pushback, social media, as well as, you know, email and what have you. What is it like to do to, 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 to write when you have to deal with this? Yeah, the echo chamber, I don't mind. It's the uh, targeting that is really disturbing. And what I have found really throughout my career is that people go for the low hanging fruit and uh, or some people do and yeah so the first thing they do if they don't like something i've written is um you know perhaps refer uh in an insulting way to my religion my ethnicity because uh, i'm jewish or my gender because i'm female and so i have taken a lot of um a lot of crap, if I'm allowed to say that word on this podcast, uh, from people. And a lot of it has been, you know, the K word, the C word, it's awful. And it's it's never been easier to um, throw those insults out into, 
you know, into a journalist's lap. When we were starting, someone would have to sit down and write a letter and hand, you know, or maybe type a letter up on a typewriter and mail it. Now someone can just sit down with a beer and shoot off what they're thinking and and feeling. And often it's really um, intensely offensive. And yes, I have dealt with a lot of that and I'll probably deal with more of it. You just have to consider the source. Do you read your the, the Twitter comments and, and, and all that stuff? Facebook and wherever on the on the globe? I usually don't. Um, I am very active on Twitter and I will read what people say on Twitter, but there have been a few um, instances, mostly during the trucker convoy, so-called trucker convoy this year, that things got so bad that I absolutely had to stop reading what people were saying to me. It was it was horrible. What is your how would you define your your position on Israel-Palestine for our listeners who may not know? Hmm, that's something I'd rather not talk about right now, if you don't mind. But yeah, that is that's um, that's a tough one. It's going to be a tough one. Would you say you're a Zionist? I guess that would be something you could say. Yeah, I'd rather not talk about this. I know that you hosted the UJA's Federation launch, campaign launch this past week. So you are out in the Jewish community supporting Jewish community work. Can you separate that personal life from your professional positions on things? Or are, are you going to try and not, you know, it's hard to cover your own community, right? When you are then working in it. Yeah, I don't consider myself working in the community. Um, I was asked to moderate, uh, although, yes, the Jewish community is very important to me. I'm part of the Jewish community. But in this case, I was asked to moderate uh uh, an interview with Mayim Bialik and Jonathan Cohen, who have a podcast called Mayim Bialik's Breakdown, which is so great. And because uh, the Federation here in Vancouver, their uh, focus this year is on mental health, uh, they asked me to talk to Mayim and Jonathan about their podcast and about mental health and specifically youth mental health, which is an issue that is super important to me. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't consider myself like an activist. I'm not, and I'm not at all, but I'm always happy to, you know, assist a charitable cause that's important like that. So I wanted, I want to move on to, to the reason that mental health is so important to you in your book, Kiss the Red Stairs, the Holocaust once removed, which we have a copy here for listeners who haven't already heard about it or heard you speak or bought it, um, the, the whole topic of inter, intergenerational trauma is explored beautifully and also how you worry about if you're doing too much to your own child. Well, thank you, first of all, for engaging with the book. I appreciate that. I realized at some points in my life, it became more and more apparent that I, as the child of two Holocaust survivors, have probably uh, been affected by the trauma that they went through. Uh, most, for most of my life, I thought, <clears throat> sorry, for most of my life, I thought it was probably because they had been affected and maybe their parenting had been affected. They were amazing parents. They were amazing people, but maybe they couldn't be as present as, you know, the the parents that I see around me and the parent I try to be. But a few years ago, some studies started coming out looking at a potential 
biological transmission of the effects of trauma uh, that said that the children of, that found that the children of Holocaust survivors actually inherited the trauma genetically. And this was really interesting to me. And these studies were coming out as I was going through a hard time in my own life. And I, I started to wonder if part of, um, part of my difficulty in adapting to certain circumstances, in this case, my, my marriage was ending, part of that may have come from inheriting the trauma that my parents experienced. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, as I say in the book, I'm not sure if this trauma has been inherited biologically or environmentally, um, but I believe that I have definitely, I am the person I am because of, in part because of what my parents went through. Yes. But you worry about overdoing it with your own son. Yeah, it's a real uh, challenge. How do I uh, protect him from the forces that have made me, um, you know, uh, sometimes overly suspicious, uh, skeptical to the point of cynicism, always thinking the worst is going to happen, the other shoe is going to drop, all of which um, I think make perfect sense for someone whose parents lived through what my parents did. But I don't want my son to be burdened with that. Um, I don't want him to ever be scared that someone might come after him one day because he's Jewish, which was something I grew up worrying about, um, not realizing that the other kids didn't have that burden. So I've really tried to protect him from that. And he's he's a great kid. He is really, um, he's funny and smart and really aware of the world. Um, and I, I just hope that he is not burdened with our history the way I have been. Let's talk about the book. It's been out for six months almost, right? Uh, April was it when it came out, right? And you've been on yeah, end of May speaking tour. How has it been for you to share this story over and over again? Has it been very difficult to get into this space uh, with you know on Zoom and and in? In, I guess you've done a few in-person ones too. Oh yeah, I've done lots and it's actually been amazing. You would think it might be hard to go over this material again and again. The hardest thing for me actually was reading the audiobook, recording the audiobook, because I had to go front to back through every horrible thing, uh, difficult thing, emotional thing that I'd written about. Uh, but when you engage with an audience, um, it's actually been really beautiful. People um, are either they're learning things and telling me that they didn't know this, they didn't know that. Um, and they're really interested and want to know more. Or a, a comment that I get from a lot of other uh, second generation uh, um, Jews, like children of Holocaust survivors is, I could have, I feel like you were in my head. This was exactly what I experienced. Um, this is my story. This is, you know, um, my neuroses are very similar to yours, that kind of thing. And it's been actually incredibly gratifying and beautiful. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there will be times when it, it won't be. I'm sure there will be times when it's difficult. But so far, it has just been an amazing experience to 
to bring this book into the world. And I know it probably, I'm going to say maybe it doesn't, but I think it makes you closer to your parents. Every time you talk about them, you feel close to them. Yes. And the book was very much, uh, the result of me trying to learn about my parents because I felt a need to be, to get closer to them. Uh, they're both passed away a long time ago and I was going through this hard time and I really needed my mom and dad. And, and I've just, the only way I could have them close to me was to learn as much as I could about them. And that was very much a part of the process of writing this book. Although it's about much more than their stories, that was a big part of the process for me in deciding this was a story I wanted to tell. Now, I would be wondering, your book is a bit of a different take than a first-generation actual survivor's memoirs, like the Azrieli Foundation and people you know who write their own. But what is left... You're saying to me something that's shocking. People say, I didn't know this. In this day and age, with so much out there and so many people have written memoirs and done documents, how can people still not get what the Holocaust is and deny it? It, it just boggles the mind. How do you react to this? Well, I, it's not that they didn't know the Holocaust happened. I think maybe they just... They didn't really understand some of the horrific cruelty. There were certain events that I wrote about, specifically involving children and babies, that I think were really hard for people to read. And I think, you know, it's probably not a lot of Jewish people are reading this and, and saying I didn't know this, but I'll be honest, there are people in my family who've read the book and have said, I had no idea that Zadie, like my father, uh, did that, or that this is what happened to Bubby, my mother. So actually, I think there are a lot of people who don't, maybe don't know all the details. And certainly the science around epigenetics and intergenerational trauma, I think is really new for people. But um, even uh, last weekend, I was doing a, a book talk in Victoria uh, with uh, this lovely book club. And one of the women told me that she had lived in Lipstadt, which is where my mother's, one of the work camps my mother was in was located. This was a satellite camp of Buchenwald. This woman had lived there for three years as a teacher in the 1970s, and no one ever talked about what happened in Lipstadt. She didn't know, because no one talked about it. Um, you know, she's learning it from my book all these years later. So yeah, there are still, there, there are a lot of things people don't know. There were things I didn't know. I learned so much reading this book. Most of it horrifying and awful, but some of it actually life affirming. As a person who's now an expert on Holocaust and education about the Holocaust, you must be, uh, I'm going to tell you that I'm sure people say, hey, you're the Canadian Dara Horn, right? So about, you know, they love dead Jews. And that's her famous book that came out a year before yours. Uh, do you do you feel that that's fair comparison? Oh, my God, I would love to be compared to Dara Horn. Her book, People Love Dead Jews, is is genius. She is amazing. I am I'm not in her league, and I'm also not an expert in, in the Holocaust, and, and I want to make that clear. I'm not a historian. I, um, you know, I've read a lot, 
I grew up into it. I've lived it. I've watched way too many documentaries about it, but I'm not, I don't consider myself an expert by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I do feel that if I'm teaching people anything about this, if through me people are learning something about it and learning about other horrible events and the way the trauma is passed down, for instance, um, residential schools, that, that is so important to me. That means, uh, that means the world. Do you feel the, is Holocaust education the solution to current fighting of anti-Semitism? Holocaust education is absolutely essential. Um, I will tell you that, you know, at my kid's high school in Vancouver, Last year, there was a huge problem with swastikas being drawn on washroom doors and on like erasers and things like that. And, you know, I brought this to the attention of the principal and the teachers um, who were in the class at, when this one particular incident happened. And I just, um, you know, they were they were great. They were very upset. But this this continued to happen. And my feeling is if these kids understood what this symbol meant, what it led to, what it represents, they wouldn't be doing it. My feeling is they're just, they're, they're kids trying to get a kick by doing something that they know they're not supposed to do, that they're being, out, they're trying to be outrageous and provocative. If I went into the school and told them what my parents had to go through and read some of those stories about the children and the babies, about what people went through, I just, I feel, and it doesn't have to be me, if they really understood what happened and what the absolute horrors that that symbol represents, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm naive, but I feel like they they wouldn't be drawing that symbol if they really understood. And that's why I know, I know it's really hard. Survivors are aging. Um, it's, there's not the sort of accessibility that was around two decades ago where survivors went into schools. My mother did that as well. Um, that is the most important program, bringing survivors to uh, students in schools, if it can happen. Um, the next most important thing is teaching this in, hi in history, through literature, whatever. I mean, I went to public school in Ontario. We didn't learn anything about the Holocaust. Zero. That was a long time ago. That was the 80s. I'm sure things have changed. But, there, but it is an important thing to teach, and it needs to be taught. You mentioned something in your book about how kids, if they would only know. I remember going on the March of the Living as a journalist for CBC, and we went to Majdanek, and we were all wearing the blue jackets, as one did. This is in 19, early 1990, 1991. And there was a bunch of non-Jewish local kids who were going on a field trip. And I'm sure you know that big urn with all the ashes outside where everybody... And they were throwing cigarette butts into it. And our kids went ballistic and started beating them up and screaming at them and like, how can you do this? And that was 20 years ago. I, I'd hope... You, one would hope in all this time, more than 20 years ago, that one would hope that 
this would not happen, but yet it does. In Munich, a couple of weeks ago, when they were having the European Championships of, of you know, right before the Munich fiftieth um, massacre ceremony, a person did the Swiss, the uh, Heil Hitler um, salute to the Israeli team. So, I don't know how how where does your book fit in? I mean, you can't solve it all by a book, right? It's out there. It's resurgence, right? Yes, there is a very disturbing resurgence of anti-Semitism. No question. As for those kids in Poland, that's a whole different topic because those kids probably knew nothing about um, what went on. Although I'm actually, it makes me feel good that they went to Majdanek and someone was trying to teach them. So that's good. Um, I I think there are always going to be racists and anti-Semites. It's horrible. Um, We do have to counter that. I'm more worried about the creep of that into the general population, like the kids at my kids' school, stuff like that. That is, um, that's where I hope education and books like mine can maybe make a difference. Well, we'll have to leave it there, as they say. (laughs) It's been great to talk to you. Uh, We could talk for hours, but thank you for giving me this time on the CJN Daily. Thank you, Ellen. Thanks so much for having me. Some of you might recall that Marsha wrote a long article for the CJN's magazine this past spring about how our newspaper has influenced major milestones in her life. We put the link to that article for you in the show notes. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News sponsored by Metropia, integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout out goes to Dr. Evan Zaretsky of Toronto loyal fan who came out to see us at the CJN's booth at the recent Ashkenaz Festival in Toronto. We'll be at it again this Sunday, September 18th at the Prosserman JCC in Toronto at Shepherd and Bathurst. They're having a sweet week market and so come on out and see us at the CJN booth. You can record a greeting to your family and friends for the Jewish New Year. Also, don't forget that today is the last day to join the CJN as a subscriber if you want to guarantee home delivery of our beautiful new magazine, which is coming out in a couple of days. Oh my God, I'm even on the front cover. (laughs) To get your discount coupon, use the code 5783 when you sign up. And the link is in our show notes. Thanks for listening. (music) 